0: Lewis, um, the CSIS report. Um, so it was a a, ta- a report of the CSIS task force on relation, or U.S. Taiwan relations, U.S. policy towards Taiwan. titled the report: Towards a stronger U.S.-Taiwan relationship. Now you were you were a member of the, of this task force, um, and I want. Before I get you to sort of to, to elaborate on the report, take a few minutes to do that. I want to just read the sort of the one of the introductory paragraphs and put it in the context of what we've been discussing. The focus of this task force is on US policy towards Taiwan and sh- which should be driven by a clear assessment of American interests. These interests include ensuring Taiwan remains a secure, stable, healthy, resilient, prosperous, and innovative democratic society that is free from predation or coercion. It is also in the U.S. interest that Taiwan remains integrated into the global economy and continues to serve as a provider of global public goods. Um, As you explain the the report and and what you're trying to achieve with this report, can you keep two things in mind? Firstly, one, what is the clear assessment of American interests and what that means in the global context? And secondly, maybe I'm reading far too much into this, but given that, uh, that Taiwan and, you know, companies like T- TSMT's determination to be the, 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 global, the global fab, are we alluding to the provider of public goods being a provider of technology and or more specifically, semiconductors?
1: Yeah, and, and semiconductors are directly in the report and certainly were part of our discussion. And, and I, even, I even have the cover hot off the presses from my local 7-Eleven, because anyone who spent any time in Taiwan knows that 7-Eleven and Family Mart are crucial to our existence here. They are not high tech, um, but they are fantastic. Uh, and it's, it, was, uh, it was a delight to work on, on this task force for, for many reasons. It was co-chaired by Bonnie Glazer. Uh, Mike Green and Richard Bush, uh, three wonderful Taiwan experts who have been involved in policy for decades, and and their expertise was rich and and, and really just a joy for me personally. Uh, We had people from CSIS to Heritage, uh, members who had worked under Republican presidents, under Democratic presidents. And at the end of the day, all, I think, 17 of us uh, signed on. Uh, And so I think, too, in this Time where everything is so polarized. I, I can say this was a true bipartisan, even some of us more, you know, some more nonpartisan effort. And and the official launch is happening in a few hours. So if people don't have Zoom fatigue uh, at noon Eastern time, they can head over to csis.org uh, and either download the report or and or watch uh, the co-chairs uh, present the report. It is a holistic report. It covers everything from defense and security to economics to bilateral and multilateral issues, international organizations. Uh, It it is titled, as you said, towards a stronger uh, U.S.-Taiwan relationship. I do wanna emphasize that stronger does not mean just keep ramping it up in a spinal tap, this goes to 11 um, simplistic way, uh, but rather recognizing that there's going to have to be some fine tuning, calibration, uh, in part because, you know, there is the, the huge China factor and it is uh, framed very much in the we were American experts looking about what should the United States do in its policy toward Taiwan. We, we were cautious not to um, have a laundry list of things that uh, President Tsai should be doing. That should be another task force that I hope happens. And we also were cognizant, of course, that uh, what Xi Jinping and company decide to do are going to have a huge impact on, on the calculations. But I think we purposefully also did not Put this into a triangle where everything has to be seen in the cross-strait lens, because uh, now, as someone who has spent a lot of time in Taiwan, it is frustrating when Taiwan is always seen in that cross-strait uh, situation, as opposed to being recognized in its own right. And and particularly as we've been discussing, you know, for the last hour, how important Taiwan is to semiconductors and ahead of China, you know. And I don't think most Americans recognize that. So um so as far as uh, with the technology and economic side, uh, the you know one aspect is that the u.S Taiwan relationship is still on the economic side using TIFA, the trade and investment framework agreement, which is now you know 25 plus years old, and it really needs to be revamped. And there's a push to uh, have a bilateral trade agreement, which the current USTR has been dragging um, its feet on. Um, But there's a lot of momentum, I think, going forward. Uh, So that was one thing we looked at. Now, specifically, with respect um, more to what affects the semiconductors, uh, in our recommendations, we say that one recommendation is to encourage and assist Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturers and key suppliers to expand production in the United States. That is, of course, in the United States' is interest everything from simply jobs um, to having that technology housed on, on US soil. Um, and along those lines, too, uh, a recognition that we need to have, um, for example, the US-Taiwan Economic and Commercial Dialogue look more at issues about protecting intellectual property, uh, some of it know, through you know, export regulations, also through use of criminal sanctions, economic espionage, and needing to um, make those conversations more robust on a bilateral level, but also a multilateral level. You know, how can we bring in uh, Australia, Japan, other more sort of like-minded? So this isn't just about uh, the U.S. and Taiwan, but making sure that we have strong multilateral systems in place uh, for protecting IP. Uh, and so that's just a start. And I'm, I'm happy to go any direction talking about a lot of other things that are in this report um, and. And, and again, I think it, it's it's a it's a really comprehensive and, and timely piece that I, I hope that people will uh, find their way over to download. Hmm.
0: Gentlemen, if you don't have any uh, questions for Maggie straight away, I'll 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 dive in. Um, Maggie, can you put the report in the context of the historical, very simplistic thinking of of the. Um, of the notion that the United States will be there to support Taiwan militarily in the event of a skirmish or something, well, hopefully something or, or something potentially worse. Um, you know, put the put the report in the context of 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 thinking around U.S. Taiwan relationships over the last forty years.
1: Yeah, and there is a military and security aspect to the report, and that is certainly um, always on people's minds, and, and even more in the forefront. of of people's minds now, where um, not only has there been some saber rattling from Beijing uh, and uh, a lot more traffic, uh, both in the seas and in the air, uh, which uh, I worry about. When I I was in law school, I wrote an article on the EP3 incident, which you might remember back from April 1st, 2001, when the American surveillance plane collided with a PLA, a a Chinese military jet, uh, resulting in uh, the death of the Chinese pilot and an emergency landing of the EP3 on Hainan Island. Uh, and that was actually resolved in a way that was a pretty calm heads prevailed. Uh, Rumsfeld had some great quotes along the way and they kind of got him out of the way but i i don't know today if something went bump in the night over the strait uh whether people would get on the phone and uh be able to de-escalate the situation uh so just you know that is that is something which is uh you know how 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 things could go wrong um though i don't think there's a really significant threat of a full-scale invasion you know anytime soon um that is something which is always um in possible, and especially with China's growing military might. Um, But I would be cautious about ramping up that sense of inevitability in the the near future that that's not helpful. So security, though, is so much more than just this not wanting uh, China to be able to launch submarines off the east coast of Taiwan, um, Taiwan being that critical first island chain, uh, where you, if you have the ability to uh, have naval bases here, you're in a much better strategic position into the Pacific Ocean than launching from the Chinese mainland. So that's the more sort of old school, I think, military thinking. But now that we're seeing that uh, the semiconductor industry is not only a um, an economic issue, but increasingly a uh, national security issue, that this idea that uh, Taiwan is not only important for being in the first island chain, but in the first island chain with these foundries on it. And, um, and much more of that awareness too as, as playing into the U.S. interests. Uh, and just finally, I, I do think too that uh, values are important here. And, and we're hearing, you know, the, the U.S. right now where democracy is, is having a rocky time to say the least. I was in Taiwan in January for the last presidential election. And, and the technology used is there's a box The box has a a slit in it. People take a piece of paper, they put it in the box, uh, they tape up the box. And then later that day, they open the box, they pull out these pieces of paper one by one, Right on the board, because this is usually done in schools and and they count the ballots and um, and it's um, heartening because uh, it's direct democracy, you see it, it works, it's not corrupt. And uh, this is a place that was under martial law um, up until you know, really, it was 1996 was the first uh, direct presidential election and uh, martial law into the late 80s.
0: So, so, Maggie, just do me a favor, take off, take off your um your American diplomatic hat and put on your put on your cap for me. Xi Jinping cap for me. Um what we've talked, the, the the last hour of the conversation has been dominated really by by what, what US intentions are and the like. Um but can you give us a little bit of background um in the last, you know, over the last couple of years and and, and gaze into a into a very murky crystal ball. And and talk about what what Chinese thinking longer term is towards Taiwan and, you know, the goals of reunification, um, how realistic are they um, and how imminent are they?
1: I, I started my study of Chinese in China, in Beijing. I first went in 1995. And that was, of course, a very different time. And we, we still sent postcards because it was right before really we started getting email. And, I, and I'm actually grateful that I was there at a point um, when I could see uh, China before it joined the WTO and and, and before Xi Jinping. And, uh, and, and I was there during the WTO um, negotiations. I was working at a law firm in Beijing at the time. And, and I'm happy that I had have those um, more optimistic memories to know that it's a very difficult time in US-China relations. It will remain difficult for some time to come. I don't know how long, but I'm not holding my breath. But it's not going to be forever. And and so one thing I would say is I have no idea what's going on in Xi Jinping's mind. I, I wish I was a fly on the walls of Zhongnanhai. Uh, and I think anyone who says they do is, is should be looked at with some caution. Um, you know. However, um, I, you know, we we can tr- try to make some predictions based on on what we're seeing, and and one thing we're seeing is that, um, you know, of course, that Taiwan has been put out there as part of. Potentially his legacy, and and I uh, would caution about using the word reunification. Um, take off the R E. Now, Taiwan was never a part of the PRC, and and if you talk to uh, people in Taiwan, you go on Taiwan Twitter. Um, there's certain phrases that drive us crazy. The tropes of in a move in a move that will raise the anger or ire of Beijing, uh, reunification. You know this um, the self governing island of Taiwan, right? and uh and, and i think there that you know this is really crucial that uh there is not a great claim to taiwan by the prc and this sense that it is bringing taiwan back to the motherland is a construct of the communist party of china and and we should not adopt that framing and uh, because of course when uh the KMT, the Nationalist Party, came over after World War II, uh, Taiwan had, up until the end of World War II, spent 50 years under Japanese colonial rule. It was then returned to China, at the time was the Republic of China, and then, of course, Chiang Kai-shek moves that government here um, from the mainland. And so I think, too, the sense that today, Taiwan is so different from uh, the PRC and, and from mainland China. And I, I find it really stunning when I spend time here, and I, I haven't been to China for about a year, almost a year and a half now, um, but um, how that distance is is growing, um, particularly politically. And, and so I think that there's this um, real need for uh, audiences outside of Taiwan to understand Taiwan as um, as Taiwan, and not always Taiwan and China or Taiwan and the US, um, because it it has almost 24 million people. uh, And it's a large place. And uh, there's a lot of countries that get taken much more seriously with uh, similar size economic heft and population.
0: Right. So Maggie, am I missing the the point a little bit here? Um, Because, and again, I appreciate that you know the tensions may simmer, but there's certainly nothing imminent. And, and I think it's wrong um, and borderline hysterical as we potentially enter a new administration in the United uh, the new administration in the United States, to naturally assume the tensions will amp up here and there and there'll be dramatic change. But we do have, you know, Taiwan caught in the middle of its two biggest, its two biggest customers. Um, it's too big. You, you could argue it's too biggest influences geopolitically, um, that have polar opposite views on on how the Taiwanese economy should operate. America doesn't want it doesn't want it to sell its great its best uh, and biggest export to to China. China is talking about you know, We can argue about the legitimacy of China's claim over Taiwan. I think the point you made incredibly valid. Um, China doesn't think that China thinks very differently to that. Um, and. You know, but how do we bridge this divide between what are I would argue polar opposite polar opposite intentions uh, of the United States in China with sort of Taiwan stuck in the middle?
1: Right now, I don't think we bridge the divide. We hope that that divide doesn't collapse into some catastrophic earthquake or whatnot, because this is not, um, I think, a time where we're going to resolve the cross-strait issues. And and to be clear, I don't want to poo-poo the threat um, from uh, Beijing. Uh, I do think it's meaningful that Deng Xiaoping brought Hong Kong back. And the only way to outdo Deng is to bring Taiwan back. And, uh, and I think there are real reasons, especially with the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party coming up. You know, that's a that's a big uh, anniversary. You know, we want to make sure that this isn't complacency. Uh, But I I've long said that, you know, what the U.S., what Taiwan needs from the U.S. is not a hot, passionate romance. You know, we'll send you some shiny objects in the form of the latest jets. But it's a strong, stable marriage. And what I mean by that is you know, I'm, I'm really happy when I hear, for example, the Defense Department talk about a strong you know, free and open Indo-Pacific, because having Taiwan not in the hands of Beijing is, is critical to a free and open Indo-Pacific. And so I want to see US planes and ships fly wherever they're allowed under an international law, sail wherever they're allowed under an international law, show that they are here, they have um, a strong presence, but there's grown-ups in the room, that it's not uh, sabre-rattling. Uh, and so right now, I think the status quo is a really good outcome for the foreseeable future, because I don't see the the people and the politics in place to bridge the divide in a way that's coming to some sort of real resolution of uh, cross-strait issues.
0: Right. So, so Jimmy, to, parap- to paraphrase Michael Jordan for a second, Republicans by semiconductors too, and the... Can we talk, and I know it's difficult with 12 days to go to avoid being political, so please you know, temper your thoughts wherever you need to, but look forward to the next four years, right? So um, be it another four years of President Trump, um, more, more likely, as the polls are saying, we're going to see a Biden administration um, who will, on day one, adopt Previous Trump policy, right? Because it's up to you know the stat, the status the status quo is the status quo, status quo. But can we talk a little bit about, um, firstly, about a a President Biden whether he would alter or adjust these bans, um, or is he going to maintain the status quo? Because um, that's simply the easiest course of action.
2: So difficult question. and obviously I'm you know not part of any campaign, so I don't have any view specifically as to what they might may or may not do. But I think what I can comment on is you know the overall political environment. and it's it's certainly a fact that over the last four years, you've seen a tremendous shift uh, in terms of thinking between both Democrats and Republicans regarding China policy. And I think it's just going to be virtually impossible to go back to, you know, uh, the way the the way things were in the mid 2000s and 2000, you know, even in 2010, 15. And I think as Maggie pointed out, that's largely because of, you know, the policies that Beijing is pursuing. Um, And I think the, you know, the trajectory that China's on, both from a political, military, economic uh, perspective, has really shaped thinking in the United States to, particularly amongst political elites, to view China more as a strategic competitor. Uh, to view it as a threat in many, many cases. Um, and in and, and that, I think you're seeing is demanding more stringent activity by the United States. You see that with uh, Republicans, for sure, um, over the last four years with the Trump administration. Um, but, but actually many Republicans would like to see the Trump administration be even tougher on things like Hong Kong and other areas. Uh, and if you read the recently released um, Repu- House Republican China strategy report, it called for many tougher actions than the Trump administration has taken today. Then, uh, in terms of the Democratic Party, um, they too are, you know, sharing a number of the concerns that Republicans have with regards to China. The the Democratic um, Caucus recently released a China strategy legislation that called for, um, you know, a number of continued restrictions on China, but also for, you um, uh, you know, really, I think, doubling down on US competitiveness is another angle that Democrats really focus on, which is, you know, if, you, if you're if you going to have a major nation state competitor challenge the supremacy of the United States, you can't just, um, you know, win the race by, uh, you know, Tanya Harding style kneecapping. Um, you need to also run faster and just be a better athlete. Um, and so, you know, I think you see a lot of focus from Democrats and also increasingly from Republicans to say, well, maybe we too should be investing in science and technology, um, uh, educating our workforce, modernizing our infrastructure, um, because you know in the future, if competition between the United States is primarily going to be in the economic and technology and science field, then we need to treat it as such and really invest to compete. So far, we haven't seen, unfortunately, that level of commitment from you know the political leadership of the United States to do that. We're starting though to see signs that uh, that could change with. For example, draft legislation in the recent defense authorization bill that proposes billions in grants for building new semiconductor chip fabs in the United States. That would be a, you know, huge change in US government thinking. You have prominent Republicans that are fiscal conservatives like Senator Cornyn from Texas and then prominent Democrats like Mark Warner from Virginia that both support that bill. Um, it shows just how much the tide um, has shifted in Washington with regards to China. So I think you know, irrespective of who's going to be president, Democrat, Republican, the China's changed, the view of China in the United States has changed, and that just makes decision making and policy making, I think, permanently altered in, in its future trajectory.
0: Jimmy, US China series never on that. Sorry, Neil, no, go ahead. Sorry, just, just a quick one
3: um, that, that you brought up. Um, as much as we are seeing tensions escalate, uh, it is very difficult uh, to completely. Uh, uh disassociate or at least unlink the supply chains as much as there's been so much talk about an east west supply chain and there was a question uh from someone on rare earths for example um as as as, as a key commodity in semi-manufacturing that you know, the chinese control alliance share of um uh, you know we saw uh, the koreans get hurt by japanese high-end uh, semi-chemicals uh, com- uh, uh and uh and, and what that did to some of their production. So I'm just wondering, uh, regardless of which administration uh, comes to power, uh, there probably has to be some sort of, you know, meat in the middle uh, for this to work because otherwise we, we're just gonna downward spiral and, and whether it's Huawei today, it could be Apple tomorrow. I'm just, okay, which is an extreme example, but, do you guys have thoughts on, on 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 what that could be in terms of that peaceful middle or or do you think things do escalate further? Because, yeah, the rhetoric has been pretty stark from both sides of the aisle against China.
1: You no, know, one thing I would add on, on that to go with the sports manager metaphors of running faster and yes, but and you also it helps to know a little bit about the other team's playbook. And so one thing I I, I very vehemently disagree with that the Trump administration has done, one of the things, there's more, um, is ending the Fulbright program in Hong Kong and China, because I've never seen a strategy that says you're going to win by knowing less about your competitor. And uh, we need to have investments not only in the STEM fields, but also in critical languages and Chinese and understanding the Chinese economic system, political system. And the more we can do that, the better off we are not only to get to like what is going on with the Made in China 2025 plan, what does that mean? Uh, But also, you know, that to have engagement and connectivity, you get information. I've been in a number of, for example, human rights and rule of law dialogues where I don't like what I'm hearing from the other side, but hearing it gives me better information to respond. And so I think that we also need to have links and communication for our benefit and that this idea of decoupling is 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 going to cut us off from important Information and and one thing too. There's a lot of um, good resources that um, I would recommend. For example, the Digit China D I G I China project with New America and Stanford, and you know they just released a bunch of translations along with the wonderful China Law Translate of the new suite of laws coming out. And and we need the people who can do that. And and so I don't think that what I'm seeing out of Congress right now is is really fully embracing that side of the equation to, if not find the perfect sweet spot, but at least make sure that. Being competitive means also being aware of your competitor.
2: Well, and just to add to that, I think could not agree more, Maggie. I'm also a Mandarin student um, studying Mandarin in college. And surprisingly, um, the enrollment in Mandarin as a foreign language in U.S. universities is down. Actually, since 2008, there are less Americans studying Chinese now than there were in 2008. Um, And it's just, you know, how do we build a future workforce or human it's really you know you, you you it's a human capital issue as well just as you point out um and you know ending things like the fulbright yeah exactly could not agree more it's just um an illogical decision that was made but um you know i i think to the question of um you know earlier um i i, I think you know from the u.s industry's perspective and we certainly hope there can be a middle ground obtained i think you know that it's just not healthy for both sides to be in this downward spiral tit for tat and then you know both sides have blame i think um it's not just the united states it's also china you know that makes things worse when they retaliate as well um and there's some hope that um in the future whether it's you know either president that there can be a, you know a dialogue to try and resolve and communicate some of these issues and even if you can't resolve them just knowing what the other side thinks is really important um so you know there's hope for some sort of dialogue that could be established between the two countries, um, and you know, I I think ultimately the U.S. has to think really hard uh, about what are the lines that should be drawn with regards to technology and China. I think you're seeing, you know, um, the the United States really struggle with um, how to manage some of these issues. For example, on Tencent and WeChat, you know, these you know bans that are now being challenged in court. Um, but no real systematic process of, okay, if we're truly concerned about Chinese access to US data, a more comprehensive way of doing that. And so I think we're still right now to paraphrase, you know, in the process of breaking the eggs um, and haven't really figured out what they're actually gonna make with it and what, what kind of new lines are gonna be drawn between the two countries with regards to technology. And for business, that's really hard because it means uncertainty. Um, and when you're facing major uncertainty for your largest market, um, that just means it's, you know, if you're an executive running a you know, chip or a software company, and you're trying to plan for the next 24 months for your board of directors, you don't know what the world's going to look like in the next 24 months. Whereas five years ago, you had a good idea of things, you know, where growth was going to be, the market was going to go. But now geopolitics is certainly something that um, every company has to have to grapple with.
0: So, so, Mike, why don't you just take that point a step further and, um, and put it in the context of what the status quo looks like for the supply chain over the next, say, four years. And four years is just the arbitrary number I'm using because of presidential, presidential cycles. But if, but if Jimmy is, is, is right, and just to paraphrase what he just said, that strategic planning is remarkably difficult for semiconductor companies going forward, right? Because if you just don't know who you can sell to, right, particularly, particularly in the Chinese context. How do you plan? How do you budget? How do you spend on, ca- how do you, you know, execute on CapEx? So what does, what does the supply chain look like over the course of the next few years in the context of that uncertainty?
4: I think, no, I mean, that's a great point. Um, I think uh, Jimmy and Anil were mentioning, you know, how actually TSMC has been doing great. Uh, recently, right? Despite being in the in sort of in, in the center of this this crossfire. Um and you know part of the reason is again as I think it was Jimmy who mentioned that, you know, we have to think about it in terms of aggregate demand and aggregate supply. And sure, you know, Huawei may not be able to manufacture the most cutting edge phones using the most cutting edge chips, but maybe somebody else will. And you know, so hence, you know, until now, it is not really hurting. I think the challenge lies, you know, where we keep on seeing more retaliation and, you know, more action from both sides, taking us in a downward spiral, where it leads to demand destruction, where it creates more uncertainties for the businesses, and, you know, it starts affecting investment. I mean, just take the example of, of, uh, you know, access to these processors and and Huawei band, right? Sure, you know, the Chinese, uh, other Chinese uh, handset manufacturers, like Oppo and Xiaomi, you know, maybe looking to fill that gap that may be created because of Huawei's lack of access to these chips, what if in in future, you know, uh, US sort of decides to uh, expand its ban to include those companies too? Uh, Then, you know, we can imagine a scenario where, sure, Apple may be selling more phones in in China, but what if, you know, China retaliates, and and, uh, again, in an extreme step, Uh, starts restricting Apple sales in China. Again, I mean, we are talking about extreme scenarios here, but you know, those are the scenarios where you start looking at demand destruction, right? Now, there's a big Chinese population, uh, you know, which which would be buying the most cutting edge phones right now, which won't be able to do it uh, in future, right? And as the demand destruction scenario, you know, starts gaining probability, then how does that impact investment from the likes of TSMC? which, by the way, you know, has has been uh, doing capex at an ever faster pace uh, uh, in recent years. I mean, TSMC invests more than in tens of billions of dollars in capex every year. So I think, yeah, that's that's you know, that's the uh, the worst case outcome that that or uh, basically the the biggest risk that we can see if these technology tensions escalate further. And uh, I mean. Put simply, I don't think we have seen the worst uh, till now at all. Uh, in fact, you know the, the steps that have been taken till now have been relatively uh, narrow to not cause that kind of damage.
0: Anil, and what does the future over the next four years hold for TSMC? Um, you know, put it into the context of both Jimmy's framework and Mayank's framework of, you know, potentially things getting, getting a little worse um, and there being sort of more restrictions, not less on TSMC and who it can sell to.
3: Yeah, so that's um, that. That really depends on how how much worse things get, um, and and I would argue that the U.S. right now uh, needs TSMC uh, to to continue to be in business. As, you know, as does China, but but certainly the U.S. Uh, Apple is, you know, by all accounts, roughly twenty percent customer. You add Nvidia, Qualcomm, and some of the other big U.S. giants, you get very quickly into the thirties and forties. Um, so let's leave Huawei now as uh, you know, let, let's move that to zero for now. Um, so So for the next four years, um, as long as things don't kind of spiral out of control, which is certainly not my base case scenario, um, uh, TSMC will continue uh, to, uh, under. US blessing, uh, do business. And as, as was pointed out earlier, um, you know, it spend, it, it's spend. It's going to spend 16, 17 billion dollars in capex this year. That, that's you know, on a sales base of 45 billion. It's a massive capex to sales ratio, which is symbolic of a lot of confidence in this business continuity. Um, uh, you know, five nanometer, which is the mainstream product at the moment for for, for the highest node, um, was roughly seven percent of its. Uh, uh, wafers out in Q3. It's going to go to over 20% by the end of the year, uh, based on management's own guidance. And then they're already doing projects at three and and, and further. So, so that to me is indicative of the fact that this uh, faster than expected uh, semi growth in industry growth, maybe not at 30 35%, but still significantly faster than the industry, is likely to continue for the next uh, you know four years or beyond. Uh, given the demand for this technology, given the fact that we need more efficient chips for server rooms that are overheating if you know, if, if we don't have them, we need faster, more powerful chips on mobile devices um, in, in order to be able to deal with the radio frequencies of 5G, especially as we get into millimeter wave 5G, which is still a year or two out in terms of mass adoption of that. So. So for all of those reasons, um, uh, you know, TSMC remains a core holding for us as I'm, as I'm sure it does for many other funds out there. Uh, and, and we don't think that changes. But clearly, you know, if geopolitics takes a turn south, I mean, just the, just the impact against the US we think would be too, too big uh, to allow that to happen or things to de- escalate to that point, So, that, which is why it's not our base case thinking at the moment.
0: Right. So Maggie, we're going to leave the last word to you. Um, now, four years is the is an eternity for a, for an for an investor. It's the blink of an eye for a, for a, for a geopolitical thinker like yourself. Um, talk a little bit about what the next four years looks like for the the tripartite relationship between the U.S., China, and Taiwan. Um, and if you wouldn't mind being a little political and just say how what differences you would see under a Biden administration. Versus two, uh, four more years of President Trump.
1: First, one thing we haven't discussed tonight, or your morning—it's my night—is—is uh, is COVID, and uh, and of course that's also adding a lot of uncertainty. And yep. and one thing that I, I think is just miraculous, and the joy—one of the joys of being in Taiwan—is that with a population of nearly twenty-four million, they've had five hundred and some documented cases. Uh, there has not been any local transmission documented in approximately 200 days, and there's been only seven deaths. Those numbers are m- just miraculous. They're not miraculous. They're, they're they're remarkable, but it's because of hard work, good planning, trust in science, and leadership. And um, and I think that one of the big factors is how does uh, the pandemic play out um, in in China, in the United States? What is the U.S.'s recovery looking like? Because economically that's important, but also politically. I mean, the more that the U.S. continues to struggle with COVID, uh, the harder it is to deal with issues beyond its borders. Because understandably, uh, you're a parent, I mean, I'm a parent, like trying to get through the day, particularly when you have uh, a job and responsibilities, whether it be childcare or elder care, um, I want suddenly even if you say semiconductors are so important it's hard to think that when you're just trying to make sure you have a job and a house and and all of those fundamentals so i think that's that's a huge question mark that we don't know um what will what will happen as far as the trump-biden I, you know, Trump. A lot of people say Trump's been, you know, great for Taiwan, and, and there has been yes tremendous support for Taiwan in both the executive branch, and we see that in Congress. And and congressional support has been strong for Taiwan for a long time, but we're we're seeing that even more in the forefront. I would caution that um, you don't want uh, Congress to do, get too excited, and sometimes I worry that. People are more anti-China than they are pro-Taiwan. Um, and and really there needs to be thoughtfulness about supporting Taiwan in ways that are not just symbolic, but are, are really showing credibility that the US is is there for Taiwan. It's 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 great if if Taiwan could fly the ROC flag, um, perhaps when someone is visiting. Um, on of course it's an unofficial or, you know, there are not diplomatic relations, um, but uh flying the ROC flag is not going to keep uh Taiwan safe, right? So we need to think about real support, uh, not just symbolic support. Uh, under Trump, I think if he if he is in for another four years, we don't know who's going to be with him. Uh, he's so mercurial. We don't know what he's going to do between breakfast and lunch. So who knows what could happen um, in a second Trump administration? Uh, For Biden, um, he's started to make some more noises about Taiwan that are very positive, but we don't have a clear Taiwan strategy. That doesn't surprise me. I'm fine with that as long as I'm hearing these phrases like working with our partners, supporting democracies, having a, again, free and open Indo-Pacific. Those are Um, Biden has spoken about getting troops in Korea and Japan as we have done more traditionally supporting those relationships militarily. That's good, I think, for uh, keeping Taiwan secure. Uh, and, and if you look at Biden's China advisors, yeah, they're not soft on China. They're, I think, very clear-eyed about uh, who Xi Jinping is, um, what's happening um, with the political system, with the uh, horrendous human rights abuses—not just in Xinjiang, but um, there it's most more acute. So I think um, we're going to see a tense U.S.-China relationship, but hopefully one that's dealt with with a heavy, like with a, a steady hand out of Washington, uh, so that we don't get flashpoints.
0: Everyone, well, thank just, you
1: very much. Oh, sorry, add,
0: Jimmy, please, please. Just add
2: one little point there. I think the you know key thing um that Maggie mentioned, a bit more of a steady hand, also predictability and consistency. So, you know, knowing no, you know, knowing in advance what the regulations might be, having them be, you know, available for public comment, you know, allowing for orderly transition periods, all of those would be welcomed by, you know, businesses and the government could still achieve their objectives when it comes to national security. Right now it tends to be we find out on Friday evenings at 11.30 PM that there's a new restriction and then everyone's working on Saturday and there's no transition period. So, you know, I think just a little bit back to regular order in terms of regulations and exports would be a a big boost and actually would, would have little harm to national security.
0: Maggie, I don't think I'm going to have Zoom overload by this afternoon. What time is the what time is the report being uh, being broadcast? It's
1: at, it's at noon. Um, and so if you go to CSIS.org, it's easy to find. You just Google that and Taiwan. Uh, the report is available for download. And my, I do understand that uh, the event will also be recorded because it, it is not the most Asia friendly time, uh, though. I think you know all of us are, are used to some pretty wacky hours at this point.
0: Maggie, thank you very much. And um, Anil, uh, Mayak, Jimmy, Jimmy, thank you very much for your time today. And we'll have to do this again very, very soon. Thanks, everyone.
1: Thanks. Thanks.